This Dharma Talk was presented at the Austin Zen Center in Austin, Texas. For more information, visit austinzencenter.org. Day four, Rohatsu session. The middle, I often feel like the middle day of a longer session that we've we set out from shore a while ago. It's hard to even remember when we uh, left the dock and uh, the the other shores not yet in sight for a while. We're like the middle of the ocean. Just one vast circle and since we don't know where we came from and we don't know where we're going we have to navigate by stars and intuition go straight ahead and I've been very inspired sitting with you all, uh, sitting so still and upright day after day, truly encourages me. And the way we practice the forms together is very beautiful. I know some of these details of our house wind are are detailed and uh, everyone's picked up on them and as i mentioned earlier it's it's a way to uh, become one with our activity and i think that's felt more and more hopefully by everyone as we get more used to it like orioki meals going very smoothly this flow of interaction and dance and uh, just to add one piece into the, um, since we have many days left I offer this challenge a, a little form detail it's it's a hard one because usually you can um, follow the doshi or the ino but for this form, you can't actually do that. So you have to, each person has to rely on themselves without waiting for anybody else to do it. And that is, um, we don't do it that often, you know, outside of Sashin. But morning service, when we sit down, right, there's that, we chant the repentance and refuges. This is the key point to remember. Right after the refuges, there's a big bell, and then there's two little bells. Ding, ding. Those are like the, I mean, the sit-down bells. And it's nice if we like move as one unit and sit down, except for the people passing out the chant book, who are go right for the chant book at that time. And 
it's a little awkward if we're not sitting down yet because then you have a book in your hand and you have to sit down. So you kind of have to put the books like somewhere on the floor or something. So if you sit down while they're getting the books, it's a nice flow. But it's hard because the Eno is passing out the books and the Yoshi is doing some bowing. So everyone t- tends to maybe wait for, watch somebody else. So this is the great challenge. There's nobody else to watch. And now it's going to be like almost 24 hours from now. It's going to be easy to forget. <laughs> I just offer that as a, as a, um, a special form of challenge. The other one I think we're trying out this machine that we've been going back and forth a little is, uh, I think for all three services, after the, um, the final three bows, instead of brushing the cushion and arranging everything, let's wait for the doshi to do the final bows at the mat and return to the seat because then we're gonna rearrange for Oriyoki anyway. So we're gonna to have to do this whole um, movement thing anyway. So rather than doing it two times, can you follow that one? Usually uh, at morning service, we arrange the cushions to leave the zendo right after the three bows. But so we wait until the doshi's back at their seat. Yeah, let's try. These are like, this is the, the details, the meticulous attention to uh, each detail that is the style of our school. It's not a matter of like right or wrong or better and worse, really. It's just, uh, can we always be ready for what's next? And, uh, and I like this one where there's, where there's nobody to follow because uh, it empowers each individual. Nobody else is sitting down, but I thought this was the time. Well, I'm just gonna do it. That person did it. Now we can follow them. So these uh, these teachings of the Denko Roku, I first heard uh, presented by uh, my root teacher, old Buddha Tenshin, Zen Mind Monastery. I think just after the books were published, this one by, uh, just looked at these. This one was uh, published in 91, and um, the Thomas Cleary one was in 1990. And I remember because there were no translations of this transmission of light record in English at that point, or maybe there were some obscure ones that no one knew about. But these two translations ironically came out in the same year. Maybe the translators were disappointed. Somebody else was working on it at the same time they were. But they're different enough that they're both valuable. And it was a great delight in the Zen world, because in addition to Dogen Shobogenzo, 
this Keizan Stenko Roku here is like the second most important text of our particular lineage, Soto Zen. And uh, shortly after they were translated, maybe that's that year or the next year, my teacher went through this in a in the 90-day practice period. I don't remember if we went through the whole book or not, but uh, that's when I first went, felt very inspired by hearing these stories of our ancestors. And then later at the Green Dragon Temple, in our weekly priest meetings, we read through the whole book again. So 52 ancestors, 52 weeks in a year. So it must have taken around a year. So when I um, read these stories now, I often hear my teacher's voice still from, from that long time ago, 30 years ago. It struck me deeply at the time. It strikes me deeply now. And uh, that's part of this transmission of light too. That when I hear these stories, when I read these stories, I literally like, I hear my teacher's voice reading them. And uh, so that's something coming from, from that teacher. And he's reading the stories of these, of Kazan, this ancient ancestor. And Kazan is commenting on the stories of these even more ancient Indian and Chinese ancestors. And sometimes those ancestors are even commenting on Shakyamuni Buddhist stories. So uh, that's how it is in our tradition. Is, um, it's always fresh in the moment, but it's always um, building on the previous generations, maintaining the transmission of light. Thinking about hearing my teacher's words with, with, uh, with these stories, I think of in the Tibetan Buddhist tradition, maybe some of you know this um, across all the different branches of Tibetan Buddhism, I think they all have uh, something called a reading transmission. And it's just the style that um, in order to um, study a text or practice a text, uh, you have to have, you know, traditionally should have the reading transmission for that text. Like to, to, to study the Heart Sutra, well, you should have a reading transmission of the Heart Sutra, which means you should sit down with a, with a living teacher and they just recite the Heart Sutra to you. And because this tradition has been carried on for so many centuries, um, it's like they have that reading transmission from their teacher. So it's not necessarily teaching. The reading transmission is actually not really about teaching the text. It's just like reading the text. And, uh, you know, for a longer one, they, they, the, the reading transmissions are usually done these days, like at breakneck speed. Like, uh, you know, even it's all in Tibetan, of course, too. But uh, even if you knew Tibetan, 
I don't think you could follow <laughs> you know, maybe for like an hour. It's a long text. And, uh, but it's the ritual. It's a ritual just to, um, just to beautifully, I think, enact that, that there's been an oral transmission. A lot of the texts, you know, were written in ancient Tibet. So something, so we might not, this might not have been the, the tradition in India. I'm not sure. It, it might well have been, but someone like Long Chempa in the 13th century wrote, the, wrote these amazing treatises. And, you know, I think at that time they would have this tradition. So he would read the text to the student and then that student would read the text to another one all the way up to the present. So the, the reading transmission is supposed to be unbroken. Teaching, it's another one too, in addition to that. But it's a beautiful thing, I think. So in this case, probably my teacher didn't have a reading transmission of, of the Denka Roku from his teachers. They didn't have time to get through all of this, but uh, we have this now for these ancestors in this machine. Also, um, Kazan, yes. Ah. Nice. So she said that the uh, founder of this temple, Blanche Hartman Shumbo Zenke Dayosho, um, read through this with her, her Dharma heirs, or preparing for Dharma transmission. So, uh, so it's in, it's circulating around the lineage, the Denko Roku, may it continue endlessly. This is the main thing that Kazan, uh, not exactly a road, I think these were Dharma talks that were transcribed, but Kazan wrote some things too, and the, the next most well-known classic text of Kazan is called the Zazen Yojinki. Um, it's kind of like a, Dogen has the Fukan Zazengi, kind of Zazen instructions. It's kind of Kazan's a few generations later, kind of like the sequel, which is Zazen instructions. And he quotes Dogen and it's longer. And we have several translations in English. It's a great one. It's one of my favorites. You can find it here and there. So it's about four pages. We can't read the whole oral transmission, but uh, I thought just some little Zazen pointers. Not that all these teachings are not Zazen pointers, but this is the flavor of the Zazen Yojinki. This translation is called uh, What to Be Aware of in Zazen, translated by. Yasuda Joshu Dainen Roshi and Anzan Hoshin Roshi. Sitting. Y'all know about that. <laughs> Sitting is the way to clarify the ground of experience and to rest at ease in your true nature. This is called the display of the original face and revealing the landscape of the basic ground. 
clear water. Water has no back or front. Space has no inside or outside. Completely clear, its own luminosity shines before form and emptiness were fabricated. Objects of mind and mind itself have no place to exist. These are meditation instructions. And I'm skipping around some highlights. Zazen is going right into the ocean of awareness, manifesting the body of all Buddhas. The natural luminosity of mind suddenly reveals itself and the original light is everywhere. There is no increase or decrease in the ocean and the waves never turn back. The 17th ancestor was venerable Sanganandi. As we recited this morning, Sogyanandai Daiyosho. Once Rahulata, Raghurata Daiyosho, his teacher said in a verse, since I am without a self, you should see the self, because if you make me your teacher, you will understand that the self is not the self. Okay, so today's gonna get like a little bit challenging. <laughs> um, We'll come back to this verse, but another translation of this, of this verse is because self is already no self, you must see self as self. Because you have already taken self as your teacher, know that self is the self of not self. We'll get back to that. <laughs> but when Sanganandi heard this, his mind opened and he sought liberation. We say that to study the Buddha way is to study the self. So we have to do that today. But first, some circumstances. It's the old story of Sanganandi's life. He was the son of King Ratnavyuha, jewel adorned of Shravasti. He could speak as soon as he was born, and he always praised matters concerning the Buddha. When he was seven, he lost interest in worldly happiness and said to his parents in a verse, I prostrate myself to my greatly loving father and to the mother of my flesh and bones. For now, I wish to leave home and ask you to kindly allow me to leave home and become a monk. He was seven. So his parents firmly objected to this, after which he refused to eat. So they permitted him to leave home while still living at home. That was the deal <laughs> they made with him. <laughs> 
he was named Sanganandi. I think means like the joy of the Sangha. The parents had the monk Dhyana Lata be his teacher. Maybe he did an ordination ceremony for him, but like he couldn't go live in the monastery, he had to live at home. By the time he turned 19, he still had not lost interest in becoming a real monk. The master always said to himself, or this is Sanganandi always said to himself, how can I be a monk as long as I continue to live in the royal palace? Because his father's a king. It's not quite right, he felt like. So one night, a celestial light shined down, revealing a flat road. And without thinking, he started out on it. After several miles, he arrived at a huge cliff with a cave in it. He went in and at once entered samadhi, meditative absorption. Since the king had lost his son, he banished his his uh, teacher, Dhyanalata, from the kingdom and, and sent him to make inquiries about his son's whereabouts, but he could not find out where, where the son was. Ten years passed, and uh, Venerable Rahulata was going about teaching and happened to arrive at Shravasti, Sanganandi's hometown. There was a river there named Achiravati, Golden Waters, and its water tasted particularly fine. And the images of the five Buddhas appeared reflected in the water. So um, Rahulata, It's a, little, it's a little tricky in the translations, the style is, they always say, the venerable is the previous ancestor and the master is the current ancestor. And they translate it literally here. So it's, the venerable said, and then the master says, who's who again? So I was trying to translate them into their names, to track it. So the Rahulatha said to the assembly that was walking with him, the source of this river is about 500 miles from here, and a wise man named Sanganandi lives there. The Buddha predicted that after a thousand years, this person would become a sage. So again, it's kind of like ancient um, prediction um, prophecy. And Sanganandi kind of like, with his very open mind, knows about this intuits this. So when he finished speaking, he led his followers up the stream to its source, 500 miles, so probably took them a little while. So he saw the reflection of the five Buddhas in, in uh, Sanganandi's hometown of Shravasti, but 500 miles away, uh, apparently he would be. So like, Something like he, 
he left his reflection, he let his reflection, the reflection of the Buddhas from upstream, he, he sent downstream to his hometown. Sounds something like that. And uh, when they arrived there at the source of the stream, they saw Sanghanandi sitting peacefully in samadhi. And so Rahulata and his followers waited for Sanghanandi to finish the samadhi. 21 days later, Sanghanandi emerged from samadhi. So we might say, that's ridiculous. <laughs> but there are such stories. And um, I don't know if anyone here knows of the of a teacher named Delson Armstrong. This is a, a contemporary um, young man. I forget where if he's from Pakistan or somewhere, but he's mostly been li living in America, grew up in America, and um, just got into meditation when he was quite young. And um, I think there's some kind of, you know, karma from past lives that he just picked it up really quickly. <laughs> and, um, you know, and did a lot of like longer retreats right off the bat, but, um, and practicing, he was just gung-ho, so he practiced in all different traditions, I think including Zen, but Tibetan Dzogchen and Theravada, and uh, with all, with, in America, mostly. And, uh, but he learned um, from his Theravada teachers about um, the jhanas, the concentration absorptions, states of deep, deep concentration, um, culminating in a, what's called niroda samapati. Niroda means cessation. And uh, it's like the cessation of all mental activity. It's like the mind is just like turned off. So this is not actually what we emphasize in Zen tradition or the, or the Dzogchen tradition. We're emphasizing a kind of like luminous unimpededness where anything is allowed to arise and cease. Um, but there are such states that the Buddha taught. The Buddha did not teach them as, as um, awakening. He just taught them as kind of skillful means to really train the mind to be very still, just quite helpful. Um, but uh, Delson Armstrong uh, lear learned this um, Niroda Samapati. And according to his own account, there's, there's an interview that you can listen to after Sashin with him. Uh, probably several, but on the, uh, the Guru Viking podcast is quite interesting. Um, new uh, young Dharma practitioner who just interviews all these meditation experts from all different traditions and really gets into it with them. Like, you know, tell me about what, what you know, what you realized and what you're doing. 
And uh, so there's this interview you can find with Dustin Armstrong where he just um, says, yeah, I, I would, uh, I've in the past few years, I've been able to um, enter this Nirodha Samapati for six days at a time where there's like, um, there's no like mental activity at all. Like, I, like maybe we could think of like really deep, deep sleep, but so deep that he said, um, I think this was, he was in Asia at this, when he was working on this, I think he was in India or Nepal and, um, and the pandemic hit. And uh, so his kind of, he was just practicing alone in a hut, but uh, his um, supporters came to kind of like, um, because they were doing a, a lockdown in this, I think in India, they were doing a lockdown in this area. So they came to tell him about it. And they kind of like, this, this area is gonna be closed off. We need to take you out back from this hillside to the house. But he was in this Naroda Samapati and they couldn't get him out, like shaking him. But he wouldn't come out of it. So they had to carry his body. And he's, he's reporting this story himself. He said, I wasn't aware of this, but this is what they told me happened to me. And they carried my body down to the house. And eventually I came out. And he said, then he would, um, he'd be a little hungry after six days. He'd have a big meal. And then he'd go back into it, Nirodha, for another six days. And he'd come out and have a big meal and go back in for another six days. And I think he did it like three times or something, just to kind of practice it. This is like, and he's recounting this as, as well. Like, yeah, no, this is, anybody can do this. If you, you just have to learn the method and you got to put in some time and, uh, and um, it's possible. The Buddhist didn't make it up. Is he making it up? It didn't sound like it, listening to him. And he also talked a lot more about his insights and meditation and seems like an amazing character. So I'm not working on this, cultivating this Niroda Samapati myself because of other practices I'm working on. But um, I'm deeply moved that um, people are, are doing these practices in today. And are, and are able to um, realize them. To me, it's it's kind of, it's an inspiration that um, that uh, just hearing about it is a reminder that the mind is very powerful, right? and the mind is has infinite possibility, and it can be trained, and it can be cultivated, and. Uh, such things are possible in this world system. So we dedicate today's story to Dustin Armstrong. So 21 days. We don't know what kind of samadhi this was. It might not have been Niroda Samapati. It might have just been Shikantaza. But uh, they waited around to talk to him for 21 days. Finally, he came out of his meditation. And uh, <laughs> now we're going to hear, they're going to have a dialogue about, about the samadhi.
you know, samadhi just means like um, one-pointed presence. And Rahulata asked him, well, were you in samadhi physically or mentally? Well, we've been waiting around for 21 days. And uh, Sanganandi answered, both body and mind were in samadhi. And uh, Rahulata said, if both body and mind are in samadhi, then how can there be entering or leaving samadhi? So the implication is he left the samadhi after 21 days, it ended. And um, but if body and mind are both in the samadhi, then how can um, anything enter or leave it? You just left it. So this is a little bit one of the hard dialogues in this section. They're going to have this conversation about entering and leaving samadhi. So um, you have to be really present for this kind of listening samadhi. And it's a little hard how you know Kazan says this, tells the story too. So now Kazan's Taisho, he's he's going to comment on the story as the story goes. Kazan says, if body and mind are in samadhi, how can there be entering and leaving? If you practice, cultivate samadhi aimed at body and mind, this is not true samadhi. If it's not true samadhi, then there will be entering and leaving. If there is entering and leaving, the samadhi, then it must be said that it's not really samadhi. So maybe you can follow the gist here anyway, that uh, it looks like there are these states, samadhi states like this neurota samapati that you can enter at a certain time and then you can leave it at a certain time, like 21 days later. But uh, the, the Zen ancestor Rahulata is, um, kind of challenging him about this samadhi and, and uh, Kazan's commenting, saying, if there's entering and leaving the samadhi, that's not true samadhi. Like the self-enjoyment samadhi without moving a particle, we extend the Buddha's great activity everywhere. It may be said that this self-receiving and employing samadhi, this self-fulfilling samadhi, called the self-enjoyment samadhi, is uh, is not something that you that you your body and mind enters and leaves. You might think of it that way, but um, this is the this is the conversation here. Kazan says, "Do not look for body and mind." where there is samadhi. Remember, Sanghanandi said, my body and mind are in the samadhi. Kazan saying, don't look for body and mind where there is samadhi. From the beginning, the practice of Zen has been dropping off body and mind. So what can be called mind? What can be called body? 
and Sanvenandi said, although there is entering and leaving, the characteristics of samadhi are not lost. This is back to their conversation. It's like gold in a mine shaft being put into the mine shaft or taken out of the mine shaft. So uh, the analogy here is that there's like the gold, the, go the valuable shining gold is like the samadhi and um, it's it's in this storehouse, this mine shaft, but you can take some of the gold out and you can put some of the gold back in, but there's still gold in the in this mine shaft storehouse. Can you get the gist of the analogy? So uh, Saranandi again says, although there's entering and leaving, the characteristics of samadhi are not lost. It's like gold in a mine shaft being put in and taken out, but the gold still remains gold. Or literally it says, the essence of gold is always at rest. Even though you can take some gold out and put some gold in. There's something about the nature of mind that's uh, at rest but can some, and that's the samadhi. And then um, can body and mind come into and out of that resting nature of gold? Then Rahulata says, if the gold is in the mind shaft or leaves the mind shaft, but you say there's no motion in the gold, then what kinds of things would be enter would entering and leaving be? They had no like debate. Yeah, we did this in, in uh, old India. They had this kind of like back and forth. Still not grasping the meaning, Sanghanandi said, You say that if gold moves, what kinds of things are entering and leaving? I say the gold enters and leaves, but not that there's motion. Try to picture the image, right? There's this big storehouse of gold, and then some of it's coming in and coming out of the, of the storehouse, but he's saying, but actually nothing moves. Sanghanani says, Say, and then Kazan says, saying that there is no motion in gold, but that there is still entering and leaving is a dualistic view. It's like nothing's moving, but something's coming out and in. Isn't that a dualistic view? How can you say it's both moving and not moving? Therefore, Rahulata said, if the gold is in the mine shaft, how can what emerges be gold? If gold leaves the mine shaft, what is it that remains? And Kazan comments, what is outside does not enter, nor does what is inside exit or emerge. 
if gold leaves, and the translator put in parentheses, body and mind, because this is the analogy, if body and mind leaves the samadhi, there is total leaving. If they enter, they enter totally. How can they be in the mind shaft and also leave it? Therefore, Rahulata said, that which leaves is not gold. What do you call that which remains? So, so the teacher Rahulata is saying, that which leaves is not really gold. That which comes and goes is not really gold. What do you call that which remains in this stillness? Not grasping the meaning, Sanghanandi said, if the gold leaves the mine shaft, what remains is not gold. If the gold stays in the mine shaft, what leaves is not anything. He's trying to get around this issue. It's like, well, there's still gold there. Something leaves. What is it that leaves? Like if the body and mind exit samadhi, and uh, Sanghanani says, well, what leaves is not really anything. Nothing that exits samadhi. And Kazan says, these words truly display ignorance of the nature of gold. This is very challenging if you're having trouble with this. <laughs> I, I understand. I have to read this many times myself in multiple translations. So um, I think what Kazan's saying here is um, that which, uh, which, you know, this is gold nature of awareness itself and experiences of body and mind are um, seem, seem to enter and leave um, this unchanging space. Um, but but Sanghanandi says, well, what leaves is really nothing at all. And Kazan says, um, this, misses, this miss is missing the understanding of the nature of gold, which is not just nothing. I think this is what he's trying to say. The gold is not just like nothing. Therefore, Rahulata said, the meaning is otherwise. Realize, and Kazan says, Rea reality, really, although it seems as if Sanghanandi was in samadhi and grasped the meaning, he still entertained a dualistic view of things and self. Therefore, he said, your meaning, Rahulata, is not clear. Now they're really almost kind of getting into like an argument here. <laughs> and uh, Kazan comments, however, there's no truth in this because it's just like a hair being blown by the wind. And uh, Rahulata, the teacher says, actually your meaning misses the point. <laughs> and uh, he was re referring to Rahulata's words. I mean, Sanghanani's words. Sanghanani said, your meaning actually cannot possibly stand. <laughs> now they're like, it's kind of breaking down. Right? <laughs> they're not getting into the finer points. They're just like, you're wrong. No, you're wrong. <laughs> and uh, 
with great compassion and kindness, Gaharlata continued, since your meaning doesn't stand, my meaning does. <laughs> Is this great kindness and compassion? <laughs> Maybe, we'll, see how, we'll have to see how it plays out in the end. Uh, Kazan interjects, because he still understood the non-existence of self falsely, Sanghanandi said, even though my meaning stands, it is because things have no self. And Rahalate said, my meaning already stands because I have no self. And then Kazan interjects, truly, even though you intellectually understand that all things are without self, still you don't know the truth of the matter. Sanghanandi said, because I have no self, he quotes Rahalata. You just said, because I have no self. What meaning does that establish? Now, at least they're back into the, into the debate. Uh, in order, Kazan says, in order to make him understand intimately, Rahulata said, because I have no self, True self establishes the meaning. Actually, this is maybe the hardest line. Really, it says, true self establishes your meaning. Because I have no self, true self establishes your meaning. And uh, so I'm not sure about this, but um, oh, I might interpret it as a uh, even your, Rahulata, the teacher, saying, even your um, false meaning, false understanding arises from my true self, which in parentheses is also your true self. It's our shared true self. And even your false understanding is arising from that. That's Coco's interjection. <laughs> this is hard. The four, now Kazan, let's take a break from that debate. <laughs> now a word from Kazan. The four great elements are completely without self. Earth, wind, fire, and water have no self. The five aggregates originally don't actually exist. Sanganandi slightly grasped the fact of the true existence of true self where there is no self, no small self, in a conceptual and discriminating manner. And so he asked, at this time, he started, Sanghanandi started to open to, to, to this, his debate partner's view, kind of miraculously here. Maybe just with that last line, because I have no self, true self, or because, you know, you could also translate it, because self has no self, true self establishes your meaning. I mean, part of the tricky thing about this translation is the word I is the, is the character ga in Japanese, and the word self is the character ga. So, um, 
you could put it, you could put self in every time these characters show, or sometimes you could say, I realize not self, but it's the same characters. So you could say like self realizes not self. And uh, so, so, um, so Sanganandi at this point says, with what wise person as a teacher did you receive this knowledge of no self? And Rahulata said, I verified the non-existence of self with the great being Kanadeva as my teacher. Remember that? And uh, then Rahulata said, I know not. Sanganandi said in a verse, I prostrate myself to your teacher, Kanadeva, and I go forth as a monk with you, Rahulata, because you have no self, I wish to make you my teacher. And um, Rahulata said, and this is the root koan, we heard at the very beginning, the root case, since I am without a self, you should see the true self, because if you make me your teacher, you will understand that the small self is not the true self. Again, this is very hard to translate because another thing that's going on here with this character Ga is that um, sometimes it's doubled like Gaga. <laughs> Gaga sometimes says, and um, so, so this translator, Francis Crook, I think, I think he has a brilliant interpretation here where he says anywhere that it's in this, in this verse and elsewhere, it just has one ga. He translates that as a small s self, which means we could say are um, the false illusory separate self. And every time it's gaga, two selves, he translates it with a capital S self, which is like our true nature. He even, uh, I'm trying to remember, if he, did he make that up? Oh, it's a long footnote. <laughs> yeah, maybe it's, maybe it's worth reading this footnote because this is hard. The term translated here as capital S self is gaga, literally self-self. I have not found this term in any standard Buddhist dictionaries. So this may be Kazan's own unique usage. I've translated the terms, the term gaga simply as capital S self capitalized to indicate that the discussion concerns what Zen sometimes calls the true self. Although Yasutani Roshi interprets Gaga to uh, refer to the well-known Buddhist self and what belongs to self, that's from like the early sutras, there is no self or what belongs to self. That's all talking about the small self. That's how he interprets in his commentaries uh, on, this, on this chapter. Um, or me and mine in Sanskrit, 
Atma Atmiya in his comments on the Denkaroku, I believe that this is inaccurate. I'm a great fan of Yasutani Roshi. He's the one in Three Pillows of Zen, right? He's the main teacher in there. And a Dharma brother of my teacher in Japan, uh, Tangan Harada Roshi. But um, I, I deeply respect Francis Cook for saying his interpretation is otherwise. And here, I'll, I'm going to agree with Francis Cook. That's just um, meditating on this case. Uh, I like this interpretation. Uh, my own reading is based on several factors. This is Cook. One of which is the use of the term in the concluding verse where Gaga is said to appear many times with different faces. The true self appears many times with different faces or many forms, a teaching found frequently in Kazan's text. It is the true self or formless self which does this, not the false self and its possessions. Also, Kazan's own use of the term true self or shinjitsu ga, which he uses elsewhere, following this verse leads me to believe that the term is a synonym for the true self, while the ga of the same verse simply denotes the false self or is a reflexive pronoun. In other words, I, because I have no self. Um, finally, the Shusho Bukun Keizan Denkoroku, another commentary, glosses Gaga with Muga Nishinga, or selfless true self. So there we have it. This is the kind of work it takes to unravel this kind of stuff, I think. Francis Cook, I think, does a great job here. And you can read um, uh, Griffith Falk's comments online as well. To study the Buddha way is to study the self. So, uh, so this is the root, the root koan here, right? We could translate it, let's translate it now it, in this way. Since Self, since myself is without a small self, you should see the big self. Because if you make me your teacher, you will understand that the small self is not the big self. And then Kazan comments For those who thoroughly see, the true self, the ordinary self, does not exist. How can the myriad things obstruct their vision? Seeing, hearing, perceiving, and knowing are finally not separate, nor is there any separation from, nor is there any separation it is just one matter, one reality. Kind of some different translations here. Literally it says, um, 
seeing, hearing, perceiving, and knowing are finally not separate in terms of this true self. And uh, so true self is another name for Buddha nature. And all this, all this fancy complicated talk is all about ordinary mind. This one, that we all share this present uh, awareness. When we look carefully, we see that um, everything that we experience is happening within this field, this space of present awareness. It's not happening outside of awareness, is it? How could, how could it? <laughs> if it's not happening outside awareness, that if it was happening outside of awareness, there wouldn't be any experience of it. So it must be happening within awareness. And uh, there's all kinds of experiences like seeing, hearing, perceiving, and knowing. All these are not separate. They're just different modes of awareness. Awareness can can uh, operate, can function as seeing and hearing and perceiving and knowing. And the colors that are seen and the sounds that are heard are arising and ceasing within the one space of awareness that's here called Gaga. Mother Prajnaparamita, Lady Gaga. <laughs> the lovely, the holy, everything that has ever happened is happening within the vast space of Lady Gaga. Where else could it happen? But within Lady Gaga, as Lady Gaga, everything is simply a perfect expression <laughs> of Lady Gaga herself. Who am I really? Lady Gaga. <laughs> Who are you really? Lady Gaga. There's nobody in the universe that's not Lady Gaga. There's not even an inanimate <laughs> stone, wall, tile, or pebble that's not Lady Gaga. Homage to Lady Gaga. Therefore, Kazan says, there's no separation between ordinary beings and sages, right? They're all Lady Gaga. Ultimately speaking, yes, people manifest in different ways at different times, but ultimately what they all really are is this one true self. And teacher and disciple are united as Lady Gaga, as Buddha nature. When we uh, 
sometimes this is in, on my um on my uh blood lineage document i received a jukai my teacher drew this um, seal where the folds of the paper cross and sometimes maybe um, that's a custom and sometimes not it goes in and out of style so esoteric thing um but it's called the uh the double harmony seal and it's the it's the um chinese character for harmony or meeting and it looks like a little like like um roof a rooftop with a line and a uh, and a mouth square mouth under it so it looks like a little house with a rooftop like this and it's and this and the meaning of that character is like meeting or harmony or unity and um and and it, and that same seal is used in dharma transmission documents with teacher and student and this is sharing some secrets here right but you can see it on a jukai kachinaku but um but the to make that instead of each um teacher and student instead of each of them writing one seal and having the the two roofs meet like that where the where the paper folds um one does this half this roof and the half of the other roof and one writes half of this roof and half of the other roof so it's like like that and then it ends up making a double a double harmony seal excuse the ancestors for revealing esoteric secrets that's and that's the character that's used here uh, teacher and and disciple are united or in harmony it's that character go when you thoroughly see this principle then this is what is meant by encountering the buddhas and the ancestors oneself is the teacher and the teacher is oneself not even a sword or axe can cut the two apart because um if you get a really uh a really really sharp sword or axe and you try to slice space in half you can't do it right you can't cut space in half sanganandi was suddenly awakened to such a principle and for this reason he then sought liberation it's kind of implying he it wasn't complete yet but he he's like we're on to something here and now i really want to i see the possibility of total freedom and i want it <laughs> i'm seeking liberation and rahalata said your mind is already free it's not bound by self. And now um, there's a bunch more um, stories here that um, that you can read on your own because uh, so many stories. They're just they're the old kind of mythical stories of going up into heaven realms and 
pulling down bowls of food and reaching under the earth and pulling up Amrita and stuff like that. They're good, but, but uh, this could go on and on. But uh, but I just want to um, to let you know that in the Pari Nirvana Sutra, the main source of um, Buddha nature teachings in China and Japan, in chapter three, the Buddha says that the Tathagata says that all things are empty of self, small self, but they are not truly empty of true self. The Buddha sometimes talked this way. He many times said all things are empty of self, but here Buddha says, all things are empty of self, but they're not truly empty of true Atman self. What is this true self? The Buddha says, that which is true, real, eternal, autonomous, and whose ground has an unchanging nature is called the true self according to the Parinirvana Sutra. Not self and true self sound like the opposite, but um, this is just an important point to, that they, they're not, these are not contradictory statements. In fact, we could even say they're more like synonyms. Not self is a synonym for true self. Can you see? So, because true self is like all-encompassing, timeless, boundless, unchanging, um, ordinary, plain old, present awareness. And um, from the perspective of this all-encompassing true self, there is no separate self. There's the appearance of a individual person and another person and another person arising within this true self. But those are more like just the temporary display of the true self. Can you follow that? N not self is another name for true self. No small self, no individual personal identity is another way of talking about the true self, which is our actual shared identity. Anybody um, not follow that point? Really? You're welcome. This is the time we can, we can talk about it. This is, a, this is an amazing teaching of the Parinirvana Sutra and of uh, the Denko Roku. Yes. I can't remember all the Dharma talk yesterday, but this thing kept sticking in my head that relates to what you just We discussed randomness and free will yesterday. Just, we're almost agonandi there because we're 
by asking that question, it's the same argument. It's the same argument that happened around the economy. How so? <clears throat> you can't ask if there's free will if you, or if you really believe in true self, you really understand true self. It's, it's, it's all there happening. There is no self to ask if they're free will. It's the same. It's the same. It seems like the same story to me. And I don't approve the whole thing yesterday. But oh, that's a nice point. Yeah, yeah. You're connecting with this. If you, can, you, can you hear? Uh, so um, we're referring to the uh, yesterday's conversation about um, free will. And uh, if everything is just conditioned, it seems like there's no... Um, and there's no separate self in addition to the conditioned five aggregates and that we call a person, then um, how could there be free will? Free will would be like some, some, in, some unconditioned independent me that can decide to do this or that. Unconditioned mean like my decision is not just um, merely a conditioned response. Right. That's what I, I would understand free will to mean the decision right now to raise my hand is, um, it was, is an unconditioned decision and uh, that, that I'm making myself. That would be our, our usual understanding of free will. I said, but, but who's that one that's deciding that independent of conditions? So we say, yeah, it looks like, to me, it looks like, um, Again, an unusual sounding synonym, but it seems to me that free will and separate self are almost like synonyms. Yeah. yeah. And observe. Observe. It strikes me that Saganandi observed it. He observed everything. He's in Samadhi. And still was an observer. He still had a piece of observer there. Hmm. Um, especially when he came out of the samadhi, supposedly came out and started talking about it, then he was like looking back at the samadhi, talking about what comes in or out of it. Maybe he should have just stayed quiet, actually. <laughs> but then he wouldn't have been able to come to this point. So, so uh, yeah, so the, so the, um, so I think you just said, um, doesn't it seem like from the perspective of true self that um, there also wouldn't be free will? And uh, yeah, I would agree with that. The true self, the, the way we're looking at it here, um, the one that we all share because, uh, it, because it has no distinctions or borders or divisions, for example, between me and you. That one, um, from, from that one's perspective, there's no person with their own free will. <laughs> Maybe we could say, or we could ask anyway, does the true self have free will? Does this one, one Buddha mind, does it have, have um, complete freedom, unconditioned freedom? Ooh. It is, it is the unconditioned true self. It is totally free. Maybe. 
we could say the true self has free will. It has infinite freedom to manifest in any way um, possible. And it's demonstrating that freedom right now, by manifesting as all of us and everything in the universe. That is the free, the free, free play, the free, the natural free expression, unconditioned expression of the unconditioned self. So you could maybe we could say big mind, um, true self has infinite free will, but that's not what we usually mean by free will. Do I, Kokyo, have free will? No. As, as an individual person, um, my any freedom I have is actually Lady Gaga's <laughs> freedom. Right, because we, uh, you said even an enlightened person falls into causes and conditions. Yes, yes. Um, because they're a person. Right. And they have to live in, the, in this world of um, dependent arising, the play. They have to live in um, the play of the true self, which is what we call like dependent arising conditions. So, we, but, but, um, but we could say the enlightened people are happy to fall into um, cause and effect. Mm. Um, as my teacher once said it, commenting on the by John Fox koan. Um, uh, these greatly, greatly awakened people take a swan dive into cause and effect mm -hmm. rather than falling into cause and effect. Right. They do a swan dive, kind of like joyfully, like gracefully dive into the mess. It's a great image. He says, Don, I'll let me go. Head first. Yeah. Thy will be done. <laughs> May Lady Gaga's will be done. <laughs> Any questions from the uh, balcony? <laughs> about the relationship of um, true self and illusory self. Kareem. Oh, uh, you're muted. I put it in chat. Oh, yeah, I can't reach the chat from here. You can speak. Oh. I hear you. We hear you. Okay. So if there is no free will, how does karma arise? Ah, if there is no free will, how does karma arise? I think yesterday I said, um, oh, could you mute again? Because we're now we're getting an echo. That dependent arising is just the, the play of the true self, arising and ceasing appearances within. All of dependent arising is, is arising and ceasing, dependent on conditions within ordinary mind, within boundless awareness. Uh, and that karma is kind of like a, 
a subset of dependent arising. Um, and it's the subset that is the, the intentions of sentient beings that, um, that arise. We talked about this yesterday too. The intentions arise due to conditions, right? The, that's why free, why free will is, is not really free, but it's conditioned, right? Every intention of body, speech, and mind that arises is conditioned by past events. And uh, all that's happening within, um, within awareness. And, uh, and how, so how karma arises is completely um, due to conditions. It is the intentions of sentient beings, but um, those intentions that we call karma are arising dependent on past conditioning. And um, how does, was it from the perspective of true self, how does karma arise? Or no free will. From the perspective of no free will, um, what is karma? Yeah, karma is like, like um, not really free will. But often we think of karma is my free will and my free will gets me into trouble because oh I did this and it was like it caused this this pain and it was a mistake but um so it seems like usual way of thinking it seems like karma is like our free will but this perspective would be like that on a deeper level the uh these karmic um actions are all just arising from the conditions arising from previous conditions and previous conditions so um karma is just must be as it is i think i said yesterday too that um because of dependent arising if we can surrender to the um this moment that is the um, culmination of all the conditions um throughout space and time that have led up to this point, then um, it's, a, it's a perfect moment, even if it's painful. So similarly, we could surrender to, um, to karma. To, we could surrender to the, our, both the effects of our past karma and the, um, and the karma that we're creating, seem to be creating uh, each moment. In a way, it's perfect it's sometimes a problem, it's, it causes pain. So we try to work on that. We naturally work on that. If we pay attention to it, if it's painful, we wanna find some freedom. So we naturally, um, uh, the more we pay attention, the more, car the more karma evolves in a positive sense. That's one way of looking at karma rather than, I should keep trying to be a good person. That, that's also okay, but I think if we really just watch, very carefully, the cause and effect of our own actions. We naturally evolve in, in, a, in a more wholesome way because we just see that the results of unwholesomeness are, is, is unhappiness for ourselves. If we just watch that, that mechanism over and over, it's hard to watch. Yes. So none of this is my fault. <laughs> Ultimately speaking, <laughs> none of this is it's your fault or my fault. It's all Lady Gaga's fault. 
Blame it on Lady Gaga. <laughs> and um, she manifests um, freely. She's, she, why does she, um, why does she express herself as painful situations? I think that's a question that the Christian theologians often asked about God, right? Why would, why would a good, um, loving God create any pain in the world? This is our, this could be a Zen koan. Why does the true self freely express itself as delusion, greed, hate, and delusion? One response we, could, we might offer is because she's so free, she's able to do that. If she, were, if she were only like partially free, she could only manifest in like certain ways, but that would be kind of limited. She's unlimited in her, in her expression and freedom. To conclude, Kazan says, Oh, so it's Lady Gaga. I play all the time. So it's what, playing. what all the time? Playing. Playing. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah. How could she not play? Even even in her sleep, she's continuously playing, and there's no play that's not um, happening within Lady Gaga, the true self. And there's no true self that's not playing. That's your question. Yeah. Uh, in Buddhist terms, we could say there's no there's no dharmakaya without the rupakayas, the, the form bodies. They always come up together. There's no reality body apart from the play bodies. There's no play bodies apart from the reality body. So we might as well get used to it. Kazan says, it's so regrettable, good people, that we were not born during the period of true dharma or even the period of counterfeit dharma. Now we're born in the age of decline, but please consider the fact that the Buddha Dharma did come east from India and China and reached its final days. And it has been no more than 50 or 60 years since one could hear the Tathagata's true Dharma in our own land of Japan. It's interesting that this um, Buddhism had been around in Japan many centuries before, but the Zen tradition um, was only in its fourth generation in Japan at the time of Keizan, only 60 years. Just like now, the Zen tradition's only been about 60 years in this country. And uh, he's lamenting like, it just came to us so recently and we're already in the age of decline, it's about to end. <laughs> We could say the same now, right? The extinction of Zen. 
So maybe, maybe it's not always as it appears. Could Kazan have imagined that we would be um, sitting in Austin, Texas and listening to his words in another language 700 years later? You should think of this as the beginning and that the true Dharma flourishes wherever it goes. This is, as I mentioned, the, the Zen take on, on the age of decline is really every moment is a beginning and the true Dharma age is whenever the true Dharma flourishes. You have expressed your resolve with great bravery and diligence, just like you all in the Sushin. And you do not believe that your limited, separate personal self is the true self. You do not believe uh, your ga is the gaga. Truly by quickly proving the non-existence of the separate self and speedily realizing the realm of no mind, not being caught up in the workings of body and mind, not being restricted by feelings about delusion and enlightenment, not being detained in the cave of birth and death, not getting snared in the net of ideas of ordinary beings and Buddha as separate, you will understand the existence of Lady Gaga, the true self, which has been unchanging for incalculable eons in the past and will be unchanging into the eternal future. Just like the Buddha says in the Parinirvana Sutra, the true self is unchanging and eternal. Here are my capping words, Kazan says. Mind's activity smoothly rolling on is the form that mind takes. How many times has the gaga, big self, appeared with a different face? How many times the self appears or the true self's activity appears with so many faces. It's that relationship, right, of the big, big self and small self. Any, uh, any last questions? It's, I think it's to clarify these these matters with, with lots of words. And I think it takes some words to um, make fine distinctions. Uh, but all, all this is just um, to uh, help us practice the way. Uh, although I could understand that um, you might feel like this is not straightforward zazen instruction. It could be 
it could be received as such. Maybe bottom line, if we forget about everything that was said today, is right at the moment of sitting, is awareness present? We might not um, ever notice if we don't ask, even if we're even if we're one pointedly concentrated on the rising and falling of the hara, we might not notice if we don't stop to ask: Is awareness present here? Yes. Is it not? Is this present awareness arising and ceasing? Or is it just that the experiences within it are arising and ceasing? There's a lot of coming and going. There's a lot of um, experiences that are changing moment to moment. And uh, very carefully in, in Zazen, we can, um, we can tease apart the, the, ex the experiences that are arising and ceasing um, from the space in which they're happening. We can try to discern that present awareness as uh, always the same. Now it's aware of the hum of the air purifier. Now it's aware of the sensation where a human bottom meets a fluffy zafu. Now it's aware of a chip in the painted wall. Those experiences constantly changing in, in multiple sensory realms, but is there a knowing that is always the same pure knowing awareness? content constantly changing with the space in which is happening, remaining. We, this can be explored during Zazen. We can't find spaces, anything to get a hold of. Space, we can't see it, we can't hear it, we can't grab it, we can't taste it, we can't smell it. And yet, is there space in the room? Of course. It's like this. We get, we're getting familiar with, um, with uh, the space in which everything is happening. Verifying the space, exploring the space. While being the space not in an abstract, theoretical way, but in an experiential, direct way. 
and we can explore as the space in which everything's happening, we can explore the relationship between me, the space in which everything is happening, true, true me, and, uh, and the stuff that's happening within me, the space. We can explore that relationship intimately. And uh, we can't say that we don't have the time for such things this week. No one will even disturb us except for every 30 or 40 minutes to ring a bell. It's not too bad. <laughs>